A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their influences from writers to filmmakers, musicians and of course other artists and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode it's A Brush With, Jeremy Della, an artist who's created some of the most extraordinary works of recent decades, acting as a catalyst for exhibitions, films, events and happenings that often involve numerous other people and reflect on social movements, communities and countercultures, the history of art and design, pop cultural forms and celebrated public figures. He offers a distinctive perspective on his native Britain and the world beyond. Jeremy was born in London in 1966. He never studied fine art, instead focusing on art history at the Courtauld Institute and at Sussex University. His route to prominence in the art world has been nothing if not unconventional. His first exhibition in 1993 was called Open Bedroom and took place in his parents' home where he was living at the time while they were on holiday. Mindful that other artists were hosting open studios, he said he decided to stage the show and turn the embarrassing situation of still living with his mum and dad and his mid-twenties into a feature. He took over the house to show his relatively modest works at the time by appointment only. Within a few years, though, he was getting into his stride artistically. For History of the World, made in 1996, he drew a diagram about the social, political and musical connections between acid house music, the late 1980s counterculture, and brass bands. This mind map has proved a cornerstone of his work, manifesting itself as a wall drawing, but also as an emblem of the thinking behind many of his projects, which often explore Britain's shift from industrial to post-industrial society and its artistic and political manifestations. Acid brass from the following year was a dramatic translation of that diagram into performance with the Williams Ferry Brass Band performing Acid House Classics, both a joyous noise and a deeply moving reflection on societal shifts and music's role in social movements and communities. The eventual apotheosis of this idea was Jeremy's 2019 film for the BBC, Everybody in the Place, An Incomplete History of Britain, 1984-1992. to But as you'll hear, music has been central to Jeremy's work throughout. Early projects reflected on the Welsh rock band Manic Street Preachers and subsequent films and events have incorporated everything from British ska, synth pop and electronica to Jamaican dancehall, as seen in his 2016 film Bomb Bomb's Dream. Arguably the work that propelled Jeremy to widespread fame was the Battle of Orgreave in 2001, made with the visionary public art producer's Art Angel. Jeremy said that for years he'd had the idea to reenact a confrontation between coal miners and police in the Yorkshire village of Orgreave during the 1984-1985 miners' strike in Britain. Noting that the footage he'd seen had the quality of war, he worked with hobbyist battle reenactors and some of the original miners in an extraordinary happening which was filmed by the director Mike Figgis. Jeremy described it as digging up a corpse and giving it a proper post-mortem and given that it had been proven that South Yorkshire police used excessive violence and told lies about miners' actions, a thousand-person crime reenactment. But while Jeremy has a particular engagement with Britain, his works also reflected powerfully on international issues. For It Is What It Is, a project with New York's New Museum and the public art organisation Creative Time in 2009, he took the remnants of a car involved in a car bomb attack in Iraq in 2007 across the US from New York 
to Los Angeles, stopping in 14 towns and cities. There, members of the public could have conversations about that devastating war with an Iraqi citizen who'd sought asylum in the US and an enlisted US soldier. Jeremy later donated the car to the Imperial War Museum in London, where it's been a central object in redefining how conflict is represented in museums in the 21st century. Meanwhile, Memory Bucket, which helped Jeremy win the Turner Prize in 2004, was a Texas travelogue that visited the then US President George Bush's hometown, Crawford, and ended with millions of bats filling the Texas sky at twilight. Bats are among many ongoing preoccupations in Jeremy's work, alongside everything from ancient axe heads and arrowheads to cycling and the great British designer and social campaigner William Morris. A key aspect of Jeremy's practice is his ability to corral individuals and groups into remarkably productive collaboration. Whether that's the brass bands I mentioned, or indeed steel bands, the brilliant protest banner maker Ed Hall, the rock icon Iggy Pop, who he convinced to be a life model in a project at the Brooklyn Museum in 2016, or the huge range of amateur makers and performers that Jeremy and the artist Alan Kane brought together for their Folk Archive project. Another collaborative event that achieved huge acclaim and a mass public outpouring of emotion was We're Here Because We're Here, commemorating the centenary of the Battle of the Somme on the 1st of July 2016. Thousands of volunteers took part in a living memorial conducted by Jeremy with the theatre director Rufus Norris, featuring groups of men dressed as First World War soldiers gathering silently in various locations around the UK. The sheer scope of Jeremy's endeavours is reflected in a new book that he's authored about his work, Art is Magic, and I began our conversation by asking him if organising a retrospective in the form of a book suited his expansive and unorthodox work, perhaps more than the confines of an art gallery. Well, I have to say that the experience of writing this book was absolutely mortifying. It was like I was having to sort of drag out parts of my innards and my brain and then just slap them on the table. It you likened it to death in the well, book. Well, mortifying, you know, when something's mortifying, it, it's the, the root of that word is more, isn't it? Death, you know, in French. So it, it felt like I was slowly dying when I was writing it. I felt I was explaining myself too much. And so what else is left is there within me because I've given you the contents of my tiny brain or whatever, my soul or whatever like that. It was a very long process writing it because it, it was actually writing it and then rewriting it and then rewriting it and finding a correct tone really to talk about yourself because you're talking about yourself. So you're massively aware that you don't want to come over as being pretentious or pompous or any of those things that uh, you don't want to be. I don't want to be certainly. I mean, some artists love being that, but I don't want to be that person. And of course, the sort of language, therefore, that you're using, as you say, it's in your own voice. And there's a sort of irreverence there, but it's definitely not, for instance, an art historical or theoretical language that you're using. No. So it's, it's very much in that sense, it is you sort of selecting or curating your own interpretation of your work. Yes. Well, I like to think that it was the equivalent of sitting next to me in a cafe or a pub and having a chat. I didn't go to art college, so I didn't get indoctrinated into that way of talking or thinking about work. Maybe that's one thing. And I wanted it to be a book for everybody, not just for people within our world as, as we see it. And so for me, it was very important to make a book that was approachable. It's not a difficult book. There's some difficult work in it, but the, the book itself, I think, is, is approachable and friendly, if that's the correct term for it. No, it absolutely is. But it's also interesting, I think, in the context of your actual practice, in terms of the way you accumulate images, objects, and so on. You said about that, and I alluded to it in the previous question, about 
the difference between selecting versus curating. You call yourself a selector rather than a curator in the book. Can yeah. you unpack that a bit for me? What does that mean? What's the difference in a way? Well, I think curating suggests you've got an idea of what you're doing, whereas the selecting, you're just taking things and then seeing what happens later. Curators have plans. They, have a, you know, they write a, a large document about the exhibition and what it will be, so they know what it is before they've done it almost. That's, that's a simplification maybe, but often with the work I do, especially with the folk archive I made with Alan Kane, we didn't really know what we were doing. It was a trip into the unknown, really, a journey into the unknown. So we were, we were just taking things as we saw them, we didn't really have a clear idea of what it was until we, we'd finished doing it, making that show, Folk Archive. And that's probably how I work, a more instinctive way of working. Again, that's to do with the lack of training that either of us had or I have as an artist. So Yeah. I was privileged enough to see some of that happening at Tate Britain at the time. Privileged, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> uh, but, but it was really interesting how that intuitive or instinctive response that you and Alan had was absolutely destroying the kind of structures that the institution had in place. It's funny, really, as an artist, I've never really had problems working with the public or being in the public realm. The problems often happen when you go into the institution. Tate Britain was a very different place in 2000 than it is now. I know this. and It was a new institution, wasn't it then? So, yeah. Yes, in a sense. And so going into Tate Britain in 2000 with this work from the Folk Archive, it's like the public world coming into the gallery, and I think the gallery then couldn't really handle that. I mean, now all museums and institutions are about the public. They want the public, and so they're much more at ease with the public. At that point, they seemed very fearful of human beings and living artists. Um, maybe this is an exaggeration, but it just felt like you were just being told you couldn't do things. Having been out in the world where you could do whatever you wanted, and it was... Especially with that show, the Folk Archive that we did, a small version of at Tate Britain, it was all about freedom and sort of chaos. But you bring it into the gallery and it comes about control. And I think we found that very difficult. I think people at the Tate found it very difficult because people would literally just turn up with work and walk into the Tate Gallery with the work that was going to be on the walls. And obviously that's not the way to do it in a, in a museum. Yeah, you don't have an accession number. No. It, you know, it has to be coded and then placed into a, into yes. a kind of um, bureaucratic structure. Yes, and, and we, you know, we had things that had to be checked for woodworm and, and, and insects and stuff like that. And so all these things that you weren't expecting happened. And, and it, so it became quite a, an interesting battle. And that speaks to the kind of collaborators that you work with. And, and this is an absolutely consistent thing through your work. You are always working with other people. You need other people to yes. make the work in lots of ways. I'm really interested in the process of choosing that. Is that similarly intuitive to that process of selecting that you were just talking about in terms of actually who you end up working with? Well, I think it's almost self-selecting as well, because you can't make someone work for you or with you, if they want to or they don't. And so it becomes self-selecting you find each other really. And so that's with artists or with groups of people or with individuals. You have a connection to them in some way and they have to be interested in what you're doing and feel they're part of it. For the Battle of Orgree, for example, when I was working with the former miners, I always explained to them exactly what I was trying to do and my motivation so they knew exactly where I was. They knew more about the project than anyone else did, frankly, because I just told them, like, this is why I'm doing this. And I think if you tell people what your motivation is, that's probably the best way to get them on board because they, then they understand why you're trying to do something. 
Right, and I guess that must be very, very early in the project because you have to get the trust of people that you're working with because, you know, so often artists can be perceived as these sort of highfalutin outsiders who are suddenly descending on people's worlds and yes. making art from it, yeah. That's the criticism of a lot of work like this, but especially if you're asking people to do something that's quite complicated mentally almost and emotionally, like the Battle of Orgreave, we were asking former miners to go back to a spot where they'd been publicly defeated in a confrontation with the police and so if you can get your head around that that's quite a big thing to ask someone to do like almost the worst day of the strike and possibly the worst day of their lives possibly when they were defeated in that battle and ask them to relive that day for the public and then be filmed doing it it's quite a big ask in a way but the, the former miners instinctively understood why it was something that could or should happen but yes you're often asking people to do something on your behalf because I'm not the person on stage they are or I'm not the person doing this or that they're the people doing something it was different with the car with it is what it is which was the car that was destroyed in Baghdad in a bomb attack I went on that trip around America with the American soldier and the Iraqi citizen talking to the public about this shell of a car that had been destroyed in a bomb attack kind of terrorist or Mm. secular bomb attack and uh, that was In terms of an experience, that was probably the most uh, fulfilling thing I've ever done. But you're putting yourself in harm's way, potentially, with things like that. Yes, you're putting yourself in harm's way, but you sort of went into that knowing the discomfort that was probably awaiting you, right? In terms of just the the very basic relationships, as in, as you say, the Iraqi citizen and the former US soldier, and that's even before you're meeting the public and so on. So you're creating a level of tension or discomfort even before you've taken it on the road. I mean, it's weird, really, because you say that. It's true. I really hate confrontation in any respect in my life with people, with friends, family. I can't handle it. and. I don't like violence and I don't like groups of people, but yet most of the work I do involves some of those elements and that involved quite a lot of those elements. With that work, I was trying to push things as much as I could, provoke things, and I was trying to think, what are the limits of making an artwork effectively? Is this an artwork? What am I doing? What is this? Taking this object around America for the public to look at. It's on display all the time. We're turning up in cities with this destroyed car and the public would just come and look at it and talk to us so i i was probably trying to work out where the art was but also how far can you push an idea to what point does it become unfeasible and dangerous that makes it sound like i was really macho but it wasn't at all really (laughs) it was just pushing something as far as i felt was possible i mean there's an absurdity to it as well there's a lot of absurdity to my work it can easily be seen as comedic almost, like the Battle of Orgreave can be. But there's definitely a ridiculousness about it. Yeah, exactly. But it's curious also, and maybe the absurdity is one of the techniques through which you achieve this, but um, in the book, on several occasions, there's this notion of detachment that's discussed, you know, that you manage to sort of engage with these hugely important issues without becoming overly emotional or indeed making overly emotional work. In a way, lots of the work for all the fantasy, for all the kind of absurdity is incredibly matter of fact in some ways. Yeah, well, the ideas are often very simple. I mean, I quite like making work where you could describe the work in a sentence or maybe two sentences. You don't need like four pages of A4 describing an an artwork or or a presentation of one. So I like very simple works, a restaging of a battle from the minor strike. And then, you know, I suppose the work you might be referring to is We're Here Because We're Here, which was this uh, nationwide work to commemorate the first day of the Battle of the Somme. It's a very simple idea, really, to have people just 
hang out around Britain in the uniform and just move through Britain like a, a mobile memorial. But obviously very difficult thing to do and very provocative as well, potentially, having people in uniforms in public life in Britain, which we're not really used to in the UK. But the humour within certain aspects of the work, there wasn't much humour in that, but uh, some other works is a sort of seduction technique, I think. Yeah. But it's really interesting because so many people were incredibly moved by that work. It, oh, you know, yes. If you look at the public result of that that's work. What, that's what we are talking about, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, no, 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 but it's an interesting point, I think. The distinction between the public's reaction and your emotions while you were making it, as it were. Well, I mean, I suppose all the emotion went into the preparation. So by the time it was going to happen, I was sort of, I wouldn't say I was numb to it, but I knew I couldn't get heavily involved in what was happening because I couldn't change it. Once it started, that was it. There's nothing I could do about it. So I just had to let it happen. So I just let it kind of wash over me and I could walk away from it, literally, and just let it happen. I weirdly wanted to move people, but I wanted to frighten them, actually. There's a page in my notebook that says I want to make children cry, which I really did. I wanted to really upset children made that work which you also say is like the sort of counterintuitive instruction for most things in life yes any socially engaged artwork is that's the last thing you should be doing is traumatizing children but i actually did want to upset children but i didn't in the end i ended up upsetting adults we were expecting potentially quite a negative reaction to the work especially in northern ireland or some communities where they don't really want to see the army on the streets but in the end, what happened was that people were crying and I wasn't really expecting that. I think it was because it was the week after the Brexit vote and people were just so unhappy generally with the state of Britain and the political situation in Britain, regardless mm. of how they voted, that it maybe made them understand or think about the idea of sacrifice for your country rather than sacrificing your country for an idea or for your own career, as we know some politicians did. So I think it brought out these very deep feelings about nationhood and sacrifice and death, um, as you'd expect, I suppose. Yeah. But um, unfortunately, I didn't see any crying children. But <laughs> next time. <laughs> I wanted to ask about a sort of documentary impulse in the work. I know that when you started out making work, photography was sort of your medium, as it were, and it's mm. obviously still very much in there. But there's interesting tensions, I think, between the absurdity and fantasy elements of your work there's a very nice thing that you said about that depiction of William Morris throwing the yacht into the lagoon in Venice yeah and you, you described it as an accurate depiction of a fictitious event yes and I think that's a really nice sort of summary of a lot of what you do yes there's a sort of truth there it's an artist's impression yeah and we would all love to see that wouldn't we <laughs> to see Roman Abramovich's yacht being thrown into the Venetian lagoon and destroyed what, who wouldn't want to see that, apart from Roman Abramovich? So that's something you want to see. And uh, yes, there's things that could happen in a sort of parallel universe. I mean, I did something a few years ago. I made a fundraising print for a charity that was working with people that had been made homeless by the bushfires in Australia. And I made a print of Lachlan Murdoch's house. Um, Lachlan Murdoch being the head of Fox with his father, Rupert Murdoch. He had a print of his house being engulfed in flames of a bushfire, destroyed. Again, that's something that actually could happen, but it was an artist's impression. And what was strange was I put that, this 100-quid print, and I put a picture of it on Instagram, and then all these grandchildren of Rupert Murdoch started piling into me, saying how disgusting it was that I've done this thing. Because it's this villa on fire. They said, there's children in that villa. You know, there could be children in there. And it, it, I just thought, wow, you've had the best education, potentially, that money can buy, and you still don't understand the idea of a 
two-dimensional print and the three <laughs> and the world that you live in. But I had this strange sort of pylon, sort of billionaire pylon. And I wish I'd kept the messages, but I was so freaked out by them. I just wasn't expecting them to come from these people. But I deleted them, but I should have kept them and put them in the book because it was just very revealing about people who are so rich and complain about that of all things, their victimhood of their wealth. But yes, some things I do fictitiously or speculatively do become real in the world later, not by me, but by other people. I did a series of exhibition posters in 1995 of exhibitions I could imagine seeing or I'd like to see or were questioning culture and pop music's place in culture. And I've did 10 of these posters and I think five now have been actually made into shows, not by me, but by other people. There's one on Joy Division, a show about Joy Division New Order, one about Rave, John Squire, the guitarist from Stone Roses, David Bowie retrospective, and then a show that's actually opening tonight about Paul Gascoigne, which is called World of Gaza, which I did a poster called World of Gaza. And it was a kind of anthropological show about Paul Gascoigne as I saw it. So I think art can have a prophetic side to it, an angle to it, but a lot of other things do as well, other you know, books do and so on in science fiction. But in a way, it's a sort of, it's a sort of science fiction, isn't it? Yeah. Predictive art making. Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? Probably as a teenager, it would have been Francis Bacon. But before that, I saw uh, an exhibition of Russian constructivist art at the Royal Academy when I was about 13, I think. And I really loved Malevich and I loved those paintings, those abstract paintings. Wow. Because I just couldn't believe that something could be so avant-garde and so beautiful at the same time. It really affected me in a way I wasn't even clear what was happening. But I was looking at those and thinking those are incredible. They're so dynamic and beautiful, but obviously so ahead of their time. And they, they seemed even entirely contemporary in 1980-whatever, whenever I saw them. Did you have a kind of structure for understanding? Had you been taken to museums and seen examples of modern art before that? So, so was there a sort of, I don't know, a framework for, for trying to fathom it? A little bit. My parents, especially my dad, had taken me to the Royal Academy, so I'd seen shows at the Royal Academy. But that would be everything, from yeah. the summer show to... New Spirit in Painting. I remember seeing that and not understanding it at all. But for some reason, this work really spoke to me. And I, then I've recently, I looked at the installation shots of it and it was like all over the place. It was like really like a salon hang of this collection. This very interesting collection of this Greek guy who lived called uh, Kostakis Collection. He lived in Moscow at the time and he was collecting this work when no one wanted it because it was seen as degenerate in the 60s and 70s. It's a very interesting story. I mean, it'd make an amazing novel, actually. Mm. So that, and I also very clearly remember at the age of maybe eight or nine, seeing a Dwayne Hansen in the Serpentine Gallery, walking through High Park and then going to Serpentine and seeing a Dwayne Hansen, one of the classic tourists, I think it was, one of those ones, and being very impressed by that. Bacon was someone I studied as a teenager because I did A-level art history and it was about Francis Bacon. Right. So that was a big deal for me. It's interesting, isn't it? Because Bacon is an answer that we quite often get. He's, he's, he's a kind of classic teenage artist. But Absolutely. one of the things that's lovely about asking this question is so many different experiences emerge almost by accident. That's the great thing, I guess, about discovering art is that some things just enter your world completely accidentally. Well, you think you're being brainy by liking Bacon and also his interviews were really great. He was yeah. really great in interview and I had that book of interviews, the David Sylvester book. And he seemed like serious and adult 
and very uh, profane. He had everything going for him, really, and the lifestyle, and he looked great. And I was getting into goth music at the time, and so it was the perfect visual representation of the music that I was into. They seemed to just be the one thing. So it it came at the right time for an angsty, introverted 16-year-old was to be into Francis Bacon because it made me feel like I was grown up liking this grown-ups art because it was really grown up, wasn't it? I had no idea really what was going on in those pictures, but you knew it was... More grown up than you could have guessed at the time. It was adult material, and I felt like, yeah, this is serious stuff. Which historical artist do you turn to the most today? Well, probably in historical terms, probably people that were making work thousands of years ago who we don't know their names. Those are the people that impress me most. So it's not any one person, but it's probably people who are making work about 4,000 years ago. That school, I don't know what you'd call it, the Neolithic school. <laughs> I think that show at the uh, British Museum last year, the, I mean, it was called Stonehenge, but it was really not really about Stonehenge. It was, uh, the, yeah. you know, in the widest sense. That was a revelatory show. And I thought I knew a little bit about that world and that work. Clearly know nothing about it. And so I felt that was an incredibly inspiring exhibition. And I just hope a lot of young artists people at art college got to see that show because I think it would have been the most instructive contemporary art show in London at the time, frankly. In what sense? Well, it was just showed you that whatever idea you have, someone had it 5,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago and had done it almost. They were thinking about the same things and they were making work as best they could with the technology they had. Obviously, it's only a fraction that we have remaining of what would happen. We have no idea about the rituals that happened around these things, which would have been fascinating. It was quite sobering and uh, humbling to see that work and some of the very modest objects were made. I think were very, it was a very moving exhibition um, about human beings, basically. There's an interesting sort of dialogue there with your own work, of course, because on the one hand, you did the inflatable Stonehenge work, yeah. Sacrilege, but also... There's this deep reverence for axe heads which emerges through your work, which which have appeared in all sorts of different ways. They were in your Venice show. You've made lots of smaller works with them. Yeah. Tell us about the axe heads, because apart from anything else, one of the things is they're so ancient that you would think they had accrued massive value. But one of the things about them is that they remain somehow ordinary in their incredible specialness, if you know what I mean. In Venice, we had two uh, axe heads from the Museum of London collection. The Museum of London has a huge collection of axe heads. They weren't used for killing people. Because you just assume that when you hear axe head, oh my God, it's a weapon. But it's actually the equivalent of the mobile phone, these axe heads, especially some of them, the way they're designed, they have multiple uses. So that was interesting. So we had two of these that people could handle and the public couldn't believe that they were allowed to touch something. But one of them was about a third of a million years old and the other one was about 5,000 years old. So one was very smooth and almost like a status object. It may, it may have been a status object thrown into the Thames as an offering. And the other one was, I don't know, I can't remember where the other one was found. But it fitted into your hand so ergonomically and made that connection to that person that had made it or used it. A third of a million years ago, officially not a human being as well, pre-human person. So they look great. They look like abstract sculpture. They have incredible power to them, the fact that they've survived. Uh, So they're beautiful. They have a practical use. But also they they have this presence and uh, they're anthropomorphic almost. They're like faces. They, they have so much going for them. And so they were clearly some of the most important objects made by humans because they allowed them to do things that we weren't allowed to do otherwise. Just, you know, crushing bones to eat the bone marrow. Things like this, these tools. I mean, we have phones now. They had access, basically. And yeah. so I was just fascinated by them, basically. And so I've used them a lot. 
I wanted to ask you also about William Morris here because we've mentioned mm. him earlier on, but his significance is, it seems to me, is on multiple fronts, if you like, as a thinker yeah. and an artist, but yes. almost more as a thinker, would you say? It's almost like so many of his statements are almost like mottos for Jeremy Delaroy. Yes, <laughs> but also for how we live now. I think Morris has had so many careers and depending on the times we live in, we look at certain aspects of his career. So maybe his activism, his political work, his, his pioneering work around the environment and anti-imperialist thoughts and the importance of art in our lives and art education and uh, ecology. That's probably what we're most concerned with now in our lives. Maybe 20, 30 years ago, it was, a, it was around his designs, his, his artwork, as I would call it. Mm. But um, there's so much with Morris. And in a way, he was the first contemporary artist or an artist what we would understand within the contemporary sense in that he did everything. He's a multimedia artist. He didn't really paint or make sculptures. He didn't have art exhibitions, but he did everything else that we might understand of an artist now would do. He got involved in politics. He got involved in everyday life, effectively, and was a writer publisher everything you know which is why i did a show with him and andy warhol together because i felt that warhol was actually part of that tradition and went to a university that was based on the, those principles that morris set up for art colleges so there is a connection there that's the only connection really and strangely warhol had very little of morris in his collections and his books yeah, i think he had a couple of books and that was it but Warhol may not have been possible without Morris. You yeah. can't say that now. But, um. but there's an interesting bit in the book where you include statements by both artists mm. and the reader has to guess who said it. And, yeah. and, but in a way, you're reclaiming the Morris both of them. in Warhol. I think both of them are misunderstood and are subject to sort of quite bad cliches that oh, Warhol was just about money and Morris just made pretty wallpaper. And, of course, there's so much more. It's so reductive. There's so much more to those artists. They actually were very deeply embedded in society and in art and they, their beliefs in art were very strong and so they're contradictory characters which is what makes them interesting you know they weren't pure characters you know morris came from a very wealthy background but he understood poverty because he traveled around britain and saw it morris had access to the royal family down to people living more or less in slums so he saw the whole of britain in its entirety and which is why he was so angry because he saw it and Warhol was the same, I would say. You know, he was at the top of society. And then, he, you know, every week, as we know, he worked in a soup kitchen as part of his sort of Catholic good works. Um, so they both knew what was happening in society, even though we now think of them as maybe distant characters. I was going to read out some of these quotes, if I can find them. Do you want me to read them <laughs> yeah, out? Yeah, why don't you read out a couple? Yeah, let me could. find them. So these are quotes by either Warhol or Morris. And so it's a page in a book that says Warhol or Morris. So, okay, this is uh, a quote. Is it Warhol or is it Morris? Machines, I have boundless faith in their capacity. That's William Morris. I think having land and not ruining it is the most beautiful art that anyone could ever want to own. It's Andy Warhol. It's very instructive. Yes. <laughs> Whenever people in civilizations get degenerate and materialistic, they always point to their outward beauty and riches. It's Andy Warhol. Okay, my country is really beautiful, but it'd be more beautiful if everyone had enough money to live. Andy Warhol. So Warhol definitely had a social conscience. You might not see it because he was also interested in glamour. I think he had a quite complicated relationship to money and wealth and power, as did Morris. Let's talk about contemporary art. Which, yes. Which contemporary artist do you most admire? You know what? I saw a show, Boris Mikhailov's uh, retrospective in Paris mm. last year, which was amazing. Amazing 
photographic exhibition of really from the 1960s to the present day of his work. Because I know a lot of artists, obviously, yeah, but I, I, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know which one I would say. But I, I think the Boris Mikhailov exhibition was a stunning show, which unfortunately didn't come to London, but uh, indefinable career, really. Yeah. An extraordinary unflinching eye, that kind of, you know, yeah. like really difficult to look at, actually. Difficult to look at, slightly politically incorrect at times when you're looking at things, thinking, should I be looking at this? Yeah. Also, you really don't know what you're going to look at next, what the next image is going to be. And so it's like you have to sort of steel yourself. The amount of trigger warnings on that show was amazing. <laughs> that was like a, an essay, basically, in French and then in English about the content and what you may see if you go in there, because it was just, it was pretty harsh photography, some of it amazing nonetheless I wanted to ask you about Mike Kelly because oh, I, was, well. I was intrigued to read that your project that you did at Brooklyn Museum with Iggy Pop in 2016 which was called Iggy Pop Life Class yes it was, was kind of like trying to get into the mind of Mike Kelly and yeah. I love this idea yes well I, I could have said Mike Kelly to that question but he's very sadly not alive yeah. and I got to know him a little bit through a sculpture project in Munster and then after that I saw him a few times mm. and he was very good company actually really good fun and you, as you'd expect he was just into the sort of things I was into but, but in a better way because he just knew more about it he had an encyclopedic knowledge and the thing about Mike Kelly was that he for me as I was making work very early on, I looked to him and I just thought, okay, it's going to be okay for me because he is doing this work and he's basically telling me it's all right to make work about whatever music or popular culture in this way. He's like a mentor almost or someone that showing me that it's all right, just do this because I've done it before and it's okay. So he was very important to me before I met him. I don't think I ever told him that, but he really calmed me down looking at his work and so I was walking around the Louvre he was alive at this point and I was thinking about him and he had a show at the Louvre and I was just thinking what would be the most Mike Kelly exhibition I mean now you'd do it with an AI wouldn't you you'd put it in as a question what would be the most Mike Kelly thing you could make and it would come up with this well it might not come up with this idea and then I thought oh it has to be something that works with art history but also with contemporary culture and I was in the Louvre and he had a show in the Louvre and I thought, well, I knew he was a big fan of Iggy Pop. He'd seen the Stooges play and it had been a huge... Because he was from Detroit, wasn't he? he? Yes, so he and he'd seen, seen, some, he'd seen concerts and it clearly had a huge effect on him. And when you think about performance art as well, and Iggy Pop is effectively a performance artist in the way he works with his body and harms himself as well and puts it through pain and extreme situations and then breaks the fourth wall. All those things that we know from performance art and, um, and there's nudity involved as well, obviously. And I just felt that something with Iggy Pop, and I thought about history and I thought the life class, the classical life class where Iggy Pop would be drawn very seriously by a group of people and those drawings would become an archive effectively about Iggy Pop and his body and who he was, an alternative archive uh, of him. And so that's how the idea happened. And unfortunately, I don't get enough ideas like that in my life where it, it just makes sense immediately. It's four words and that's all you need to know. You don't need to explain <laughs> this. That is it, Iggy Pop Life Class. And so it took 10 years to happen. He said no initially. And I asked him why he said no when he did it the second time. He said, well, he said, I was too young. I was, he was 60 when I first asked him. He said he was too young to do it, <laughs> which is a brilliant answer. <laughs> it's great. But there's also this wonderful thing that Iggy Pop saw a Velasquez 
painting the the portrait of Mars yes as a kind of precursor to one of his poses and I love that, that he brought in Velasquez well I studied project. Velasquez at Courtauld and I knew this painting but I hadn't made the connection because I wanted him to have a kind of long pose it was a seated pose and he was holding a spear or a rod or something and it was meant to be like uh, Neptune or someone like that. It was meant to be this sort of grand figure on a throne. And he saw the comparison with him in this great portrait of Mars by Velasquez, which is basically a, a life painting mm. of a man, a real, real figure with not a perfect body by any means, with the sort of uh, helmet on, yeah. but naked apart from that. And he made the connection before I did, which was very impressive. But he's a very impressive human being. There's no disappointment meeting him. And it was just the wisdom that he'd accrued through all the people he'd met, all the things that had been in his body, where his body had been, what he'd done to it, situations he'd been in was just there. He was one of the most wise people and funny and just generous with his time, but also just talking about things. You know, some people just won't stop talking, but he was actually wanted a conversation. So. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. The free app offers access to more than 200 cultural organisations through a single download, with new guides being added regularly. Among the most recent additions to the app are three American institutions, Art on the Mart in Chicago, Art Fields in Lake City, South Carolina, and the Lowe Art Museum in Coral Gables, Florida. On Bloomberg Connects are various organisations with which Jeremy Della has collaborated, like the visionary art producers Art Angel, the Hayward Gallery in London and the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles. He's also an exhibit in the collection of the National Portrait Gallery in a portrait photograph by David Levine. If you download the app, you'll find a guide to the MPG, including a welcome by its director Nicholas Cullinan, explaining the extensive redevelopment that's transformed the gallery, a section called Meet the Portraits with a 60-minute tour of its collection, and behind the scenes in which sitters and artists describe the experience of creating works. To explore digital guides to all the partnering institutions, download the app today. It's available from the App Store and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We're in something like a studio here. Would you call it a studio? A studio, I always think, is somewhere where you make a mess as an artist. This is not a messy... Well, it is messy sort of it's sort of under control it's like an office space nothing gets made in here physically really there's a computer it's like a, a bedroom like a teenage bedroom without a bed in it i would say maybe there's a lot of books and yeah. files and stuff and i like being in this room yeah it's sort of comforting because i'm surrounded and co cocooned by books and Tell us what you're surrounded by, because this is the point where I ask what's pinned to your studio wall, and there's so much is instructive about your work, as far as I can tell, well, in this space. Okay, so there's books and files on one wall. I keep a lot of notebooks, and I, which I try and refer to if I'm short of ideas, if I, if I try to remember things, basically. Knickknacks, there's a knickknack <laughs> section. There's uh, files in boxes. There's a big photograph of a rhinoceros, which I can't put anywhere else in the flat because it's too big and it weighs a tonne. There's a cork wall, which was going to be my ideas wall, where I pin up ideas. But it's now just full of artwork that I've bought or been given that I don't really want to store. So it's sort of a collage almost of work. So there's a poster from a Willie Nelson concert. There's two posters from music hall events, which I just like the look of. There's a photograph of craft work playing in New York in 1981. There's a photograph of Divine. There's a print, an early print of Stonehenge. 
There's um, a photograph of David Bowie. I don't know if I mentioned that. Two photographs of David Bowie. One, one's a mirrored photograph of yes. the thin white duke, I noticed. Yes, yeah. exactly. There's a station, it's a station era one, which I, you know, obviously very special. And then there's a <laughs> photograph taken by Lee Black Childers, who briefly managed Bowie and then worked with the Ramones, this photographer mm. who crazily was selling his work for like a framed picture was like 30 quid signed by him. It's just an insanity, basically. I don't know why he was doing it for so cheap. Anyway, so I bought a few. I bought the one of Divine as well. I love Divine. And then just other bits and bobs, really. of the Hogarth print, Marriage à la Mode. And then a, a painting of St. Jerome. It's a bit all over the place, but it's distracting enough to be good. Oh, also on my desk, there's an amazing drawing by a friend's daughter. In the book, the biggest image of me is a drawing by a friend's daughter when she was nine. And it's of me in a pink top with a hat, it's a sort of manga-esque portrait of me. I love it. And it's it's actually the cover of the special edition of the book. Not that I'm trying to sell the special edition. I'm just saying it's the cover of the special edition. But also she did an incredible drawing of Donald Trump when she was seven, maybe. I'll just show it to you. <laughs> so uh, Jeremy's just handed me this picture and it's Donald Trump with sort of yellow string for hair. It's very accurate, isn't it? Actually? It's actually... That's kind of all you need to know. And there's these green sort of like uh, shapes around him and they're farts, apparently, she said. (laughs) But that's on my desk. It's by my, I think I can say her name. Her name's Iris. But she's she's my favourite. Maybe she's my favourite contemporary artist. (laughs) But I've seen her progress. I've seen her work progress. It's quite interesting when you know a child. I mean, I don't have kids, but I've known her as a baby, basically. And so I've seen her change, her work change, go through stages. And we have so much of her work in our flat. (laughs) She's the most exhibited artist in our flat. So um, I love getting work from her. Let's talk about museums. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? I mean, if you live in London, you're spoilt, aren't you? But it often means you don't go enough. (laughs) But I go to Tate Britain quite a lot. And I went there as a child. I think for a whole generation of artists, it's all about Tate Britain, really. It's not about Tate Modern. Certainly for me, that's where I feel at home more than Tate Modern. There is still that very special thing that you can wander from the 15th or 16th century to 20th century by crossing a hallway. Yeah. And that is a kind of amazing... The time travel element. I like time travelling experiences in museums. So those great sort of encyclopedic museums... In America, especially the ones that are really like the Philadelphia Museum is amazing for that. And so those are the kind of museums I do love. But, you know, I go to the British Museum enough. I think the V&A. I mean, it's the big ones, basically, the Hornemans Museum. You grew up near the Hornemans Museum, didn't you? I did, in South London. And so the Hornemans, I was there the other day, actually. It's uh, very special for me. And it's a very different kind of museum when I was going there. It wasn't as busy. I mean, you go now and it's absolutely mobbed. It's one of the highest visited museums in London but it's not a tourist audience. It's a local audience. Yeah. So it's a very different feel to it. And it's just, at weekends, it's just, it's kind of hellish. <laughs> <laughs> but great as well. I mean, I think museums that have objects in a find have people running around screaming, like people meaning children mainly, not adults. Uh, but I think uh, I love that. I love seeing that level of engagement, especially at the British Museum as well. I think it's fine to have noise in museums like that. Art galleries are slightly different. For me personally, art galleries is more like a church, whereas museums, I don't know what they're like, but I like the hubbub. Yes. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? Well, the cultural experience that blew me away was seeing Tommy, the Ken Russell film. I was clearly ready. I think when you have cultural experiences like that, you hear a piece of music or see something, 
you're sort of on the cusp of something anyway and you're ready to be pushed over to the next sort of phase of your life or to feel something. And so for me, Tommy, when I saw that when I was like 13 on a big screen, it was shown at my school actually as a film club and the teacher there was clearly wanting to pervert the minds of the boys in a good way. I use that word in a positive way, pervert. So he would show us very intense films and Tommy is intense. I mean, we saw more intense films than Tommy, I have to say. You saw Performance, Performance. which amazes me. That's the first film I saw for Film Club. I was like 13. Yeah, so just to tell the listeners that don't know that film, Performance is this Nick Rogue film, which is just extraordinary. It was banned initially for like two years and and only were able to be shown in 1971, I think. So to see it in 1979 or 1980 as a 13-year-old, it starts with this sex scene, but actually it's also a beating and sadomasochistic scene at the same time and a beating. I mean, that's the first 10 minutes. And I was watching it thinking, what is this? Yeah. What is happening? I can't believe it. And then it gets very odd. I mean, if you've seen it, you'd know. It's full of strangeness. And there's a couple of Francis Bacon uh, homages in the film, actually, yeah. as well. Yeah, so this teacher was very keen, obviously, to bend our minds because the school was so visually and culturally dead to do that. And so I watched that and Tommy was the one. I was ready for Tommy even though I didn't really understand all of it, but I thought this is the film for me. It has history, it has religion, it has rock music, it has these strange scenes that I wasn't really understanding, but for me it just blew my mind. I remember afterwards, I was high after it for like days on end. It was like I'd taken a drug or something. Is it simple enough that you can sort of draw a line from that experience to the idea of the potential for being an artist? Because, of course, you didn't study art. No. You studied art history. So can you trace back a kind of artistic sensibility to Tommy or do you just see it as just a mind-blowing thing which changed you? Yes, I think you can see it as artistic sensibility just because visually it was the most visual film I'd ever seen. I know that sounds a kind of strange thing to say, but it was just excessive ideas, just ideas upon ideas and, and, and just the visual excess and outrageousness of it. And uh, with the music, I just felt it was like a total artwork, as we'd call it now. And um, performatively as well, I just felt the whole thing was just so inspiring. And that level of chaos and excess was always something, I won't say my work has that within it necessarily, but you want to lose control, actually. I think that's the other thing I'm quite interested in, in losing control of situations and seeing where it goes, like an experiment. A lot of my work is an experiment, basically, so restaging a, a riot that's a contradiction in terms, in a sense, to remake a riot as a reenactment. Um, and so I'm always interested when things tip over, maybe. In Tommy, everything was just tipping over all the time, visually. Just when you think you'd reached a peak, there'd be another scene and there'd be another peak. I mean, it just get higher and higher. And it was so overblown and excessive. It's exhausting, really, as a film. Ken Russell was exhausting as a person and he had such an amazing career from making feature films to documentaries and working with musicians. You know, he really understood music. And so that was very inspiring. Let's talk about literature. Which writers or poets do you return to? There's a non-fiction writer. Her name's Gita Serini. Oh, yeah. And she writes very heavy, very intensely researched books about murderers, sometimes mass murderers. And uh, she wrote the, maybe the definitive account of the Third Reich almost in a book about Albert Speer. She interviewed him when he was alive. And so she got the whole story of the Third Reich of, and, the, and the last days of Hitler and the trials after the Nuremberg trials. So that book, Albert Speer, his battle with truth. It's not even his battle with the truth. It's just his battle with truth. It's one of the most incredible 
books about the 20th century. I remember it being serialised in maybe the Sunday Times or something in the UK and yes. just being completely blown away by the text. You yeah, know, this that level of that forensic detail. And control really of her. Because she's yes. obviously, she was present at the Nuremberg trials. I didn't realise this. She was Austrian. I don't even know if she's Jewish or not, but she was at the trials as a teenager. And so the control of the language and the anger of her only comes out right at the end when she totally, I won't give the end away, basically, but up to that point, she's just going forensically through his life and where he was at what time and how did he know about the Holocaust, the final solution. And it's like a detective story in a way, but that demeans it because it's really about the 20th century and about that moment in history mm. from his perspective also, but from hers. And so it, it's really one of the great books. I've read it twice now. I read it during lockdown again because it puts everything into perspective, everything. And so that was the book. And then she's written other books as well about camp guards, but also the book about Mary Bell, who is a child murderer, a child who murdered. Mm. And then there's a... Uh, there's a Jamie Bolger as well, which she added chapters about Jamie Bolger. So she's an incredible mind, basically. I'm aware that we could do a whole podcast about the next subject, right? which is music. Okay. But the question I ask here is, what music do you listen to when you're working. And it's a curious thing because, again, we were talking about is this a studio or not? Mm. Tell me about that. You know, do you have music on as you're thinking, as it were? Well, sometimes I try not to have music on in the daytime because it distracts me and you end up just getting into the music. But sometimes if I want to sort of slightly change my state of mind, I'll put music on if I'm trying to think about things or just have a blank page. It doesn't happen enough and I should do it more, really, because it just obviously music is a way of taking you out of yourself and uh, distracting you and making connections and so on. So I do that occasionally. I don't listen to as much music as I used to. Unfortunately, I listen to sort of uh, news and uh, podcasts and uh, about the news. And so I just get obsessed with that, basically, which is bad. But when you came into the studio, I was playing a track, actually. I was playing something I'd heard recently. It's this remix of Sylvester. You make me feel my material is sort of 12-minute remix, which is amazing. It's just so amazing. <laughs> I mean, that is a song you could listen to for hours and hours on end, and the remix sort of helps you do that. So I sort of dip into things. And, of course, like everyone else, I have the world at my fingertips, really, musically, So, which is very daunting, actually, because yeah. you don't really know where to start. You've obviously made so many works involving music. Yeah. One of the things that's always so powerful, I think, about them is that you always connect the music with the social circumstances in which it's made and then, of course, the social circumstances in which it's transmitted or received yeah. by an audience. How actively was that part of your consciousness when you were listening to music as a young person? Because there's a lot of fandom, your own fandom yes. and other people's fandom in there, but but it, always with a kind of social awareness and the social constructions around the work. Well, I think as a young person, as a child, I saw music and w watching music as well, very importantly, not just listening to it, but seeing it. That was my way of interpreting the world and seeing what the adult world was. So it was... Uh, I think even the book I describe it, it was, it was the window through which I saw things and I it interpreted the world of a door that I would go through. It, was, it sounds a bit odd now, the door was music, but music was my transmitter of the adult world and ideas and visual ideas as well. So for me, it was very important. I have tended to interpret the world through music a lot of the time. 
So that's why a lot of the work I make with music is about history as well, because I can't really separate the two. Certainly you can't separate social history from the music being made at the time, but I, I think there's the case that actually history itself is led by music or music has a role within history. So for me, it's very important. And there's a quote by Jacques, I don't know how to pronounce his name actually, Attila, Attila which is music is prophecy, which I wish I'd come up with that because that's such a brilliant idea <laughs> because music does push history along at certain points. Sometimes it's in parallel with history, but sometimes it's actually predicting the future, but also pushing history along, pushing social history along, certainly. And I'm interested in those moments. There's this diagram that you did, a kind of mind map. Yes. Which is called History of the World. Yes. Which also became a kind of blueprint for a great film that you made called Everybody in the Place. It's basically the script. I didn't realise I was writing the script to a film in 1996 when I did that drawing. But it was actually for Acid Brass, that diagram. It was my justification for getting a brass band play Acid House Music. Again, it's an absurd comedic idea. But behind it, it was a quite serious, for me, description of history through music. It's telling the story of the 20th century in Britain through music, going from... In, industrial music to post-industrial music, effectively, and, and from going from industrial Britain to post-industrial Britain as well. So that's what it is. It's a narrative. Music is storytelling. The diagram is really describing that, what these two well, acid house and brass bands have in common, and which is really through social unrest, uh, civil unrest and media hysteria of acid house through the drug scene and just the gathering of bodism and brass bands through the trade union movement and this sort of... Uh, violent end of industry in Britain, you could say, uh, the confrontational end, of which is the minor strike effectively, and other strikes and people losing their jobs, mass unemployment and so on. So I, I saw it all, it was all happening within about three or four years of each other in the 80s. So 84 to 88 was Acid House and the end of coal mining industry effectively of the trade union movement as we know it. And I just felt they had so much in common. But I felt that at the time, even at the time, I thought it was a really important moment. All people could go on about was the drugs, but I felt it was just much more than that. Yeah. What's interesting to me again is like how the audience reacts to this. Because I've been lucky enough to have been in the audience to see Acid Brass performed. I've also seen like the Melodians performing Ghost Town. Yes. By oh, the Specials, yes. for instance, yeah, which is yeah, a, yeah. the Melodians are a steel band. And one of the things I'm really struck by, again, is the emotional level at which the work is transmitted and the effect on its audience is extraordinary. People are crying. People are hearing Ghost Town played by a steel band and they are in tears. Yes, and why is that? Why is that? But it's true. I think music has that. It's the only art form that reduces me to tears. No other art form. Maybe film when someone's crying or when it's really sad and you're meant to cry. But I cry at music all the time. I cried at a Motet concert once, I remember because I was just so overwhelmed by the beauty of what was in front of me and the elemental nature of the rock music. But Ghost Town in itself is a very special song to British people of a certain age. And it's a beautiful, amazing song as well. So when you see a steel band play it, I think it brings up all these ideas you have around yourself, but also your country and the state of a nation. It was a state of a nation song then, and it still is now. But to see a group of people play it together, all different ages, all different ethnicities, there's something about it that is very moving. And well, I can't quite put my finger on it, but that kind of mass music making in itself, I find very moving. You see lots of people making music together. I find it very, very affecting. One of the things I'm struck by is that I've quite often been at these events and seen you like as an audience member in a way with your camera quite often. It must be bizarre seeing these things come together again, like you were talking about selecting and bringing together. And yeah. so on. 
For me, they were quite nerve-wracking, a lot of performances, because you want them to go well and you want the people on stage or who are performing on your behalf. They're my primary concern for them to feel it hasn't been a waste of time or people have laughed at them or whatever, and they've been treated well. So for me, it's nerves around that. And then, of course, this sort of huge emotional pull of the music. I don't want to be overwhelmed by that. I don't want to stand just crying my eyes out or something. So usually I have a camera in my hand as a, as a way to create distance between myself and the thing that's happening. I rarely take pictures. I just have a camera. I could almost pretend to take pictures. And, um, and the pictures I take are terrible. So it's just there. I'm just in the background. I try and be in the background as much as possible, those things, because it's really, really, really not about me. I know that sounds very sort of <laughs> insincere, but it really is about what's going on. But I've seen that time and again because it's about like your admiration for the craft, if mm. you like, of every and and that, you really see that when you see the Melodians playing Ghost Town on steel drums, mm. you can see the making of it almost as a sculptural process. It's, it's like amazingly made yeah. that music, and it's so often I think of your work as it's full of admiration for the people that you're working yes, with. Yes, and, and and their skills. I'm not a musician; I can't play any instrument. So anyone that can, I'm always slightly amazed by that talent. And so when you have a group of people doing it as well, for me, mass music making is in a sense the ideal of human existence. It shows what we are capable of as a group of people. Yes, you can build a cathedral or whatever as a group, but when you people come together and make music that's transcendent, it shows the potential of the human being effectively. You know, especially with brass bands, because, you know, I've hung around with brass bands and there's individuals, you know, they're often a certain kind of man, you know, uh, I mean, it's usually men, but when they play together, it's just transcendent. You know, everyone has their faults, but together they make this sort of perfect sound. So, for me, it's a, a great metaphor and gives me hope in humanity. So that for me is very important. And also, cover versions I find very interesting because they show what's possible, that change is possible. Because we're covering a song, it's about change, it's about reinterpretation, about being resourceful, all those things that human beings are. And it's about changes in society and so on. So for me, I really love cover versions. Um, they speak of so much about humanity. Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? Not really. I'm not that kind of person. I mean, of course, I do. I look on my phone too much, but that's not a dis- that's an indiscipline or ill-discipline. <laughs> I'm an obsessive person, but I'm not addictive. But obsessive in a low-level way. I cycle. That's probably the thing. I If I don't cycle, I need to cycle not every day, but n- nearly every day. That keeps me happy clears the head or, or keeps your senses sharp and well or... it's everything really I, I did have one idea on my bike once which I was very happy about and so uh, like a, and a really quite major one in terms of what I've done I had the idea for the we're here because we're here the, the Somme anniversary project I was on a bicycle close to here mm-hmm. I remember it very clearly having the idea so that was good but it's just uh, the older I get I just realise I need to move my body you know <laughs> so it's probably that really to do with the sort of health reasons it used to be financial because you couldn't afford to sort of when i was starting out i had to cycle because it's too expensive to get buses and tubes or whatever i felt like it was but now it's really about my body my aging body (laughs) if you could live with one work of art what would it be it goes between three works basically but i'll today i'll select the the holy grail tapestry series by william morris and edward bone jones which is i think about nine tapestries depicting the Story of the Holy Grail. They're massive. And I got to show the whole complete set, which is very rare in Birmingham when I did the show with Warhol and Morris. They come up, I think, once every 10, 20 years, they're reunited. 
because of the damage under the light. But one of the tapestries obviously had not been shown very much and it had the original colours on it and it was just unbelievable colours. Incredible. Just Others luminous. were quite faded. Unbelievable. The richness and depth of these yeah. colours was just stunning. So I would like them in their original condition because it would fill a whole flat. It would fill the flat we're sitting in now. It's kind of cheating because it's, it's not one artwork as such. It's a cycle. But uh, every room would be full of art. If it's one work, I'd have The Garden of Earthly Delights by Hieronymus Bosch, which actually wouldn't fit in any room in this way. I don't know if you've seen it. In yeah, the it's an amazing thing. Yeah. The flesh in the oil. This objectness is so fantastic. People are so familiar with it as an image, but actually if you see it in the flesh, the objecthood of the thing is well, just it's amazing. Well, sort of sculptural because it's on panels. Mm. So I think it was something that was hidden away and because of the exterior of the panels of these, as I remember it, these grisaille, mm. which is an art history term, these grey... So almost like a black and white photographs of saints standing. So it's very plain, really. And then I'm sure on certain days, feast days, it would be there'd be a performative aspect to it. It would be opened up for the public and it would just scare the living daylights out of them, basically. <laughs> you look at it now and it's terrifying and it's just who needs CGI when you have Hieronymus Bosch, frankly, or AI or any of these things. They were up to it. These people were doing it 600 years ago. And so that painting is just stunning and you can look at it forever, basically. And lastly, what's art for? It's for everybody. And it's for making life a better place, I think. I wonder if you might read the first part of the note on the back of your book here as well, because there's a lovely first note. Part, not the last well, part. Well, the last part. Well, you can read it all, all the way through. I'll read it the like. last part I might get into trouble for. There was some discussion around whether to put it on. I got very nervous and I asked someone <laughs> about it, a friend and he said, don't do it, don't do it. You're going to get into a really lot of trouble if you do that. Don't do it. But we kept it in because my publisher said, oh, yeah, to do it. See, my publishers, are, they're a bit old school, which means they don't really care. And they just thought it was fine, you know. This book is published effectively by the estate of Francis Bacon, so it's in that spirit. But I'll read out. I'll read out the whole thing, and you can. it's up to you with the other last bit. And <laughs> okay. Art is a way of staying in love with the world. It is also a form of magic a cover version of reality. It can trick us and is profoundly absurd, if not stupid. And this is the second part. Art is Magic is by far my best book. It brings together many projects and artworks in the last 30 years or so. It will bring you good luck and help you do sex better. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy, thank you very much. Pleasure. Jeremy Della, Art is Magic, is published by Cheerio and it's £30 in the UK and $60 in the US. An exhibition, also called Art is Magic, is at three venues in Rennes in France, Frac Breton, La Crie Contemporary Art Centre and the Musée des Beaux-Arts until the 17th of September. Jeremy Della, Welcome to the Shit Show, is at the Kunsthalle Charlottenburg in Copenhagen until the 6th of August. And that's it for this episode, and indeed, for this series. We'll be back with four more episodes in August. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening, and do give us a rating or a view on Apple Podcasts. Do also subscribe to our sister podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows, and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing, and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack, and the producer is Amy Dawson. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway. A big thank you to Jeremy Della. We'll see you soon. Bye for now. 
A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.